All right, so you guys ready for Hebrews chapter 8? All right, let's pray. Father God, we come before you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day. And Father, we thank you that as we've gathered together as Christ followers and maybe some seekers or even non-believers or people of all faiths, Lord, that are welcomed here today to, to study and read the word of God. Lord, we ask, Father, that, that the Holy Spirit would speak truth to us. We ask, God, that the Holy Spirit would come and minister through the Word of God. And, Lord, as we read the Word, as we, as we um, try to understand what it means, the Bible says that the, the Word of God is spiritually discerned, which means the, the Holy Spirit with us and in us helps us understand exactly what it means and how we apply it to our lives. And so, Father, we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so we've committed ourselves as a church, Jesus, to, to know you intimately and personally. And, Lord, we believe that the way that we accomplish that is, is by knowing the word of God and that Jesus is the word and that through the word that we'll know the God of heaven better and intimately and personally and that, Father, we'll know your will for our lives. Jesus, I pray for everybody who's come in today, God, or everybody that's in this building this morning that has a need, that has a, a place. And, Lord, even now as I pray, I know there's, there's folks that are, that are something's going on in their mind right now. They're thinking about something, something that, that they're, they're talking to you and asking you for. I pray this morning, Jesus, that you would meet their needs. I pray, Father, this morning that you would answer their questions. God, that today you would, you would become, as the word says, the becoming one, and that you would become and fulfill and meet the need that each person has brought today. God, help us as we study and read the word to, to walk it in a straight line and understand it. And, and, Lord, apply it to our Monday. And so, Father, we give you glory and we give you honor and we give you praise in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. All right. So in um, Hebrews chapter eight, where we are this morning, um, if you're new here this morning, I'll tell you what, you showed up on a good Sunday because Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, if you know anything about the book of Hebrews, it's very complicated and uh, maybe complicated is not a word. Let's say this. It's deep. The, the Hebrews itself says that it's a stake. You know, and so, so you can eat meat and, and, and maybe babies when they're born, they drink milk and at a certain age you're not ready for meat and solid foods. And, and eventually as you mature and grow, you can eat meat. I remember as a dad, the first time that my boys ate steak, there's just like this proud dad moment. I don't know why, you know, your son's like whatever, two, three years old and, and he finally can eat steak and you're just like, all right, my boy, eats meat. You know, and so there, there comes a stage in your Christian walk where you, you eat meat. And, and so Paul says that some things in the Bible are kind of milk and, and, and easier to digest, but the book of Hebrews can be real meat. So, um, but as we get to, to chapter 8, Paul's going to kind of have a huge um, therefore. Look at the first line of chapter 8, verse 1, and it says, Now this is the main point. The main point of the entire book of Hebrews up to this point. So again, if you just got here today and you missed the first seven chapters of Hebrews, then you're in a good spot because we're going to kind of start fresh today in our study of Hebrews. Now, again, if, if you are new to this space, I just want to say that, you know, our style here is that we just kind of walk through the New Testament chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we read a couple verses, we talk about them, we read a couple verses. You can know that if we're in Hebrews chapter 8 today, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9 next week and Hebrews 10 the following week, and when we finish the book of Hebrews, we'll go on to a different book of the New Testament 
going to kind of walk this way. We, we encourage everybody to bring a Bible. We'd like you to have pages to turn. And I know a lot of people now are doing their Bibles on their apps and their phones, which is great. But at the same time, um, one of the things that we encourage you to do as a Christ follower is to have a Bible. It just, I think it helps the way you grow, the way you learn. Uh, I think having sitting on your counter at home and just having it with you and having to drag it back and forth to church, you're a lot more likely to open it and read it. And it's, you know, it's, it's just kind of a life skill to have a, a Bible with pages. You know, if you don't have a Bible and you're still just using your app, again, that's great. But I do encourage you to get a Bible. Here's what you can do. You can get out your, you already have your phone out anyways. You can go on Amazon right now, give permission to go on Amazon. And you can buy a Bible. And by the time you get home from church today, it'll be on your door, be on your doorstep. So Amazon, don't mess around. So, um, yeah, you can ask my wife. We have like the, the Amazon hotspot. We know the guy by name when he shows up now, you know, it's like. My garage is full of Amazon boxes from all the shoes and (laughs) stuff. Um, All right, so again, real quick, and I'll try to make it very brief, but um, basically what the book of Hebrews is about in a nutshell, and I know I do this every week, and I'm sorry if you guys get tired of this, but I I do it for the... the, for the benefit of maybe some folks that are just catching up with us and catching on. But the book of Hebrews is written by the Apostle Paul after Jesus dies on the cross, but yet before the temple is destroyed in A.D. 70. So the very temple that that Jesus would have went into in his life and overturned the tables and the the, the very um, eighth wonder of the world, which is Solomon's temple, this magnificent temple that today, if it were still sitting where it were, Um, In Israel, where the Dome of the Rock is, that gold dome building, when you see a picture of Jerusalem, it would dwarf what is the Dome of the Rock today. It would stand four times taller than the Dome of the Rock. It was one of the um, wonders of the world. You know, there's temples all over the world. And we, to this day, we go to ruins and we visit cities. And one of the things we visit when we visit antiquities is we visit old temples of of ruins. But the, the temple in Jerusalem would have absolutely been the most fascinating place to go in the whole world as far as temples were concerned. It was destroyed in A.D. 70. And because it was inlaid in gold, Jesus prophesied that one, not one stone would be left upon another, which is an, an amazing, impossible prophecy considering the magnitude of these stones and the size of the temple that Solomon built. Now, as we know from history, Solomon built it, and then it got beat up over the years and they, the, the Jews got carried into captivity and Nehemiah and Ezra came back and they redid some work on it. Well, then King Herod, who was a, was a master builder, remodeled and redid the Solomon's temple. So sometimes you'll hear the term Herod's temple that was there. And so the, the gold that was on top of the temple, the temple was caught on fire in a siege in Jerusalem in AD 70. So the Romans had occupied Jerusalem during the time of Jesus' life, about 40 years prior. And, 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 and the Jews were in rebellion, and the Jews were not a good subject. And so finally there came an emperor in Rome back in Italy that said, okay, that's enough. We are going to completely sack and wipe out and destroy the people and Jerusalem. And the armies of the Romans showed up in Israel and began what was a three-year siege of Israel. And in the culmination of the siege, uh, an arrow was fired into the temple. They were actually given instructions not to destroy the temple because it was such an amazing feat and and structure. But but an arrow was shot, and it landed in the temple, and and it caught on fire. Now, the temple was made of stone, a thing called Jerusalem stone. 
And, and when you go to Jerusalem and Israel today, it's interesting because everywhere you go in Israel, everything is made out of this, this thing that's called the Jerusalem stone. The, the apartment buildings, the businesses, the shops, everything is made out of this Jerusalem stone. The old city of Jerusalem is completely made out of stone. When you walk through the Jewish quarters and different places, and I'm, I'm thinking, how in the world did this place catch on fire? It's all stone. So I asked the guide. I said, hey, how... How did this place? And he said, actually, he said, that stone, it takes a certain temperature. He said, but that stone will burn like wood at a certain temperature. So the temple catches on fire. And at a certain degree, the, 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 the temple is absolutely on fire. And it melts all the gold from the top of the temple. And it begins to run down the walls. And the Roman soldiers, in order to steal the gold, they throw every stone, just as Jesus predicted, off of one another to get the gold out of the middle. So um, a little just description of the temple that was there in Jesus's day, because it's going to come into play in, in what we're studying today. So Jesus was or Paul, I'm sorry, the author of Hebrews. Um, he's writing to a group of folks that were Jews and they followed the law of Moses and they went to the temple and they made sacrifices. And, and then Jesus died on the cross and he rose again. And these Hebrews got saved. Many of the, the people that, that, that were there in Jesus's ministry, they got saved. As we know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and there was groups that were responsible for killing Jesus, and they never, to this day, received Jesus as their Messiah. But, but there was a group, a big group of Jews that had gotten saved, and, and they were trying to figure Christianity out. Now, they had always been, quote-unquote, Christian, but they, they served the same God. But, but when Jesus died on the cross and rose again the third day, the, Jesus and God changed the way that mankind would relate to him. And prior to Jesus, men of, of the Old Testament and men of history and women of history would relate to God based on the covenant that God made with anybody? Moses. With Moses. We call it the, um, the, the, the law, the Old Testament, um, the Mo covenant of, that God made with Moses. And so God was going to give a new covenant. And the old covenant was going to be um, done away with. And that's where we come to in chapter 8, that Paul is going to tell, tell these, these Jews that, that are becoming Christians, that are walking. Now, their tendency was um, to still follow the law of Moses. Now, again, we know this was written before A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed because there would have still been the function. Now, the same thing that happened prior to Jesus dying on the cross, it still happened. The priests would go in and, and they would offer sacrifices and kill animals and Passover. The city would swell and hundreds of thousands of lambs would be offered in Passover and celebration and daily um, sacrifices and rituals were still taking place in Jerusalem and Solomon's temple. And so these Jews were struggling. Their, their tendency was to want to go back to what they knew before. And Paul is encouraging them that Jesus is better, that this new covenant, that this new system that God has given them replaced the old one and that this is now the way that they re, re, um, relate to God. You know, we deal with that here. And, and I've, I've, I've kind of counseled with a lot of folks that are coming to church here and they, they grew up in another religion and, and following God under kind of a different system. And, and sometimes the two ideas get jumbled together and they ask, oh, I don't remember if this is from my past or if this is Christian. And, um, and we, we talk and we, we try to walk through these things. And, and there's this pull and this tendency sometimes in their lives and some of the folks here that, that, that want to go back or want to, you know, their, their, their tendency is to maybe go back to some of the things that they once knew and they practiced for so long. 
these Jews have been practicing this. And so now Paul is telling them that Jesus is better than all these things in the first seven chapters. We learned who Melchizedek was. Melchizedek was a guy we meet in Genesis 14 that I taught and believe and, and is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. That, that Jesus appears undoubtedly without any kind of controversy about seven times in the Old Testament where we see Jesus appearing in the Old Testament. Somebody asked me about that, like, how was how, how, how that? Was he, like, pre-infant? Like, how did he? I was like, dude, Jesus wasn't born in a manger. I mean, he was, but that wasn't the beginning of his life, right? Like, Jesus existed prior to his, what we call, incarnation, or prior to him becoming a human and, and being born of a woman. He still existed in heaven for all of eternity. And so Jesus appears multiple times in the Old Testament. And nobody argues about that. There is a little um, uncertainty among some. I'm not one of them about um, this character in Genesis 14, whether this Melchizedek is actually, in fact, Jesus himself. I think it's undeniable. I think there's about 12 points that you see on this Melchizedek character, and 11 of them say, without a doubt, it was Jesus. And one of them kind of gives you pause, like, "Uh, I don't know about that one. But... um, Regardless or not, whether the guy that appeared to Abraham in Genesis 14 was an Old Testament appearance of Jesus or just a human priest, Paul says that this priesthood that that guy had, that that, that was the priesthood of Melchizedek, that Jesus was a priest after this order. And rather than losing and splitting hairs on who um, Melchizedek actually was in Genesis 14, what I don't want you to miss is what God is really saying is that Jesus today is your high priest. Amen? That that Jesus functions for you the way you might view a pastor or a priest or a bishop. Um, That's going to say here that he's the minister of the sanctuary, Jesus is. And I want to encourage you guys. I want to make sure that you live your life in a way that you personally know Jesus. That, That you can hear his voice when you need wisdom. That if you have a question in life about what's right and what's wrong, that that you can know that you have direct access to God and you can go to him and that God can speak to you and you can hear his voice. That you don't need a priest. You don't need a bishop. You don't need a pastor. You don't need anybody to tell you what the will of God is for your life, that you have as much access to God as anybody else. And and this chapter is going to say that as plain as day. And, and, And again, we want to encourage you in that. You know, I, I, I don't want to discourage you from coming to me for counsel and advice. That's one of the things that, that we do as a, as a local Christian church is we counsel folks and we give life advice and we do marriage counseling and life counseling and, and crisis counseling. And um, those are things that God has called us to do. So I don't want to discourage you from that. But I do want to say this, that, that you have to develop a skill and a gift and an ability and an understanding that before you seek counsel from anybody else in your circle, that you first seek counsel from the mighty God, the wonderful counselor, Jesus himself, that you talk to God. You know, sometimes people will come up to me and they'll say, Pastor, um, is it sin for me to watch Game of Thrones? Is it sin for me to X, Y, Z? Is it sin for me to do this or do that? And some issues are black and white, and I can say, well, the Word of God says, yes, that that's a, that's a sin. Is, Pastor, is it okay if I cheat on my wife? Uh, pretty sure, no. Like, No, that's black and white. You, the Bible says that, that any sex outside of marriage is sin that leads to death. And I can tell you that. No, that's wrong. 
But there's some gray areas, too, in Christian living that people want me to define for them. And I never will. I I mean, maybe give my opinion, but what I'd rather do, have you guys ever heard that old expression, that you can teach a guy, or you can give a guy a fish and feed him for a day, or you can teach him how to fish and feed him for a lifetime. It's, It's that same concept. You can come to me and I can give you a fish, but, but what I'd rather do is teach you how to fish. And, and so what, what I do is rather than answer the question, hey, is this wrong in my life? Is this right in my life? My answer is always the same. And, and if you know me well enough, or if you per- personally know me, you'll know that when I say, hey, what did dad say? That I'm talking about God. That I'm talking about our, our Abba. And, and so if you come after church and you say, hey, pastor, should, should I, what do you think about this in my life? I'm going to say to you, what did dad say? What did God say? And and I can help you. I can show you some scriptures. I've been walking with the Lord for a long time. That's where the counsel comes in. Maybe point you in the direction. But I always want you to know. Now, listen, this is what you want to be careful for in your life. And here's where people have taken advantage of of church and of of leadership and have have really led people astray. And it's really an enemy of the gospel. And I never want to be guilty of this. But but what they do is they try to create a ministry and and a style that says that if you want access to God, that you need them. If you want access and answer to these questions or you want blessing, that you need what they have. And and listen, that's just not the truth. You don't need what I have. You have it already. It's called Jesus. And I guarantee you, I don't got a corner on the market. He don't belong to me. Jesus died for all people. And you have as much access to Jesus as you need. You're like, well, then what am I doing here? What do I need you for? I got Jesus. Well, yes. But the Bible says for us as believers, I just function as a, as, a, as a cog in the wheel. You know, if you had a, I'm just one of the spokes. And if the wheel's spinning as it goes by, you're not going to know which one I am. You're just going to know that the wheel's going by. And each one of us are different spokes in the wheel. I just happen to be the big mouth. But the Bible says for us as, as believers that we should gather together regularly. Do not forsake the gathering together of the brethren. That it's, it's biblical. It's God-ordained for you to be in church on a regular basis, that, that as we gather together with other believers, that, that it helps us as Christ followers to be more like Jesus, that it sharpens us, that it, it encourages us, that there's a function of it. And as we gather together, that we, we have what are called biblically um, pastors and teachers and leaders, and God has given me and my job is definitely to spend time at the feet of Jesus this past week and and in the Word so that God can give me something that I can give you to study the Word, to help you understand it and unload it and and download it and unpack it. But it's definitely not to be your only avenue to God or your only access to God. That's not the way the local church functions. The local church, again, function as an opportunity for God to speak to you. The more you gather and come sit in this seat, you know what you're doing each Sunday as you gather and you sit here? You're giving God opportunity to speak to you. God says, do not forsake the gathering together of the brethren, which is, which is the practice of the heathen. We don't, want to be, we don't want to be guilty of that. All right, let's look at verse number one. It says, now this is the of things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on majesty in the heavens. So Paul, our, Paul here, the author of Hebrews, is writing a, a, a heavenly picture of Jesus. And he already told us in the last chapter that Jesus ever lives to pray for you. 
that right now in heaven that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And one of the things that Jesus does, listen, listen, Linda, practically, practically, Jesus is doing, he's praying for you. Like that should rock your socks. He's interceding on your behalf. He's, he's, in, he's praying for you. You know, I think some of you guys like pray really well and I, I love it. Like if I got something going on, I want to come to you and say, hey, will you pray for me? Because I'm always encouraged by it and blessed by it. But, but man, Jesus is praying for me and, and Jesus is interceding for me. So one of the things he does, and now Paul says this high priest that you have, he functions as this exact role in your life as high priest. Again, not missing the point of the whole Melchizedek thing, that Jesus is your high priest and that Jesus is the one who, who you can come to directly. And where is he? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. You, you want to know the thing about Jesus? Jesus is so chill. I'm serious. Every time you see Jesus, he's never one time, all recorded, do you ever see Jesus in a hurry? Do you ever see Jesus anxious? You know, the, Lazarus is about to die and everybody's freaking out. And Jesus is like, yeah, I'll get to it when I get to it. I'm, I'm taking a nap. I think they're making tri-tip. I'm staying right here. They're like, he's going to die. He's going to die. And Jesus waits four days. They're on the boat. And, 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 and the disciples are freaking out. And they're saying, Jesus, don't you care we're going to die? What's Jesus doing? He's taking a nap. He's like, yeah, leave me alone. I'm sleeping. I'll, we'll deal with it when I get up. He, every time you see Jesus in the Bible, he's seated, 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 seated. Let's go. No, okay. Seated. At the right hand of the Father. I think only once and maybe twice do you see recorded where Jesus is standing. Every other time it says that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. The one time I know for sure where it says we get a glimpse into heaven and Jesus is standing at the, martyred, at the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 6. And Stephen and the Apostle Paul who saw at the time, um, they're murdering Stephen for his faith. And the Jews have... have trapped him on the ground, and they're throwing rocks at him until he dies. And Stephen is asking God to bless them and forgive them. And Stephen is the first martyr. And it says that Stephen says, I looked up and I saw the heavens opening. And I saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And so Jesus is there chilling. He's watching the scene. And they begin to kill Stephen. And Jesus stands up to look at that one. And he looks and, you know, there's something that's happening that's got his attention. And now Jesus is standing. But you, you don't see Jesus standing. You just see him seated. Seated. He likes to sit. I was, uh, I, we were, it was like an Easter service one year. And I was trying to preach that Jesus um, arose. And, and, and we were saying he is risen, risen indeed. And, and, and I got to some point and I was like, Jesus is risen. I got like the two words mixed up and it just came out riz. And then ever since then, that's been our thing. Like Jesus is riz. And they're like, you are from the ghetto, right? I'm like, no, man, that's intellectual. Jesus is riz. So I got a new thing now. Jesus is seated. So Jesus was seated and we always see him seated at the right hand of the father, just cool as a cucumber, um, you know, not worried about anything. And then in verse two, it says a minister of the sanctuary. Somebody say, man. So listen, one of the roles of Jesus, I want you to catch this, so good, this should minister to you. One of the roles of Jesus in your life is he's the minister of the sanctuary. And, and now if we just put that in a practical sense, this is what we call a sanctuary. 
And, and, and so when you come, right, we have different people that, and the worship team ministers to you, and, and, and Pat ministers to you, and I minister to you, and the ushers minister to you, and the children's ministry guys next door, they're, they're ministering to your children right now. And, and yet it says that Jesus is the minister of the sanctuary, that Jesus has a place that he's personally your minister, that it's a personal, again, invitation to know Jesus personally. And that's what this chapter is about. It's really what it's about. The main thing, Paul says in verse 1, now this is the main point of all this. The main point of all this, I'll tell you in a sentence, is relationship with Jesus. You know, if you guys walked in today, let's say I stood back there where Big Mike is, and every one of you, as you walked in the church today, I stopped you and I asked you this question. What is Christianity? In a word, in a sentence. What, what does it mean to be, what is Christianity? What does it mean to be a Christian? Amen. It's relationship is the answer. It's a personal relationship. That's what Christianity is. That's what being a Christ follower is. It, that's it. That's it in a nutshell. That's everything. It has nothing to do with anything else or being approved by us or anyone else or any kind of recommendation that you get from me or don't get from me. You don't need it. And it has no bearing on anything in your life. But what does have and what it is and what Christianity is, it's relationship with Jesus. And it's an invitation for you to be intimate with the creator of the heavens and, all, and the earth and all things that are in them. And that's what Paul's telling these Hebrews. Listen, what the main thing is through all of this and what he's going to preach through this whole chapter is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Do, do you guys ever get tired of hearing me preach about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I feel like that's all we talk about. That's all the Bible talks about. That's what the Bible's about. It's about intimacy with Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus. You know, my job, you guys, honestly, every week as you come to church, here's my job. It's to get you to love Jesus more when you leave than when you got here. That's it. Because that's what it's about. Like, if your life is motivated by your love for Jesus, then I don't have to tell you whether you should be watching trash on TV or not. Because, because your, your, your life is motivated on doing what God says. You know, oh, can I do this, Pastor? It's all natural, somebody told me. It's all natural. That's your justification? You can kind of get where I'm going with that, right? Really, well, lead's all natural, too. So is mercury. I don't see you asking me if you can smoke that. Uranium's all natural. I don't see you wanting to make a nuclear bomb. But it's the same answer. It's the same direction. It's the same thing is what did dad tell you? You know, and again, if you play this conversation out before you, God, uh, uh, sorry, God, uh, I thought it was all natural. Like, is that going to fly? Is that, is that what you're going to say? Is that the excuse you're going to use? Is that where you're going to go? And, and, and how well is that going to go? Well, yeah, it's all natural. Everything's all natural to some degree, right? What, you got to go to Mars to get something that's not natural? What does that mean? It's all natural. Um, all right, so then we go on and remember um, to the rest of it, a minute of the sanctuary, which the Lord is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. Now, he, he makes a distinction in verse 2 of the true tabernacle. Now, why would he call it a true tabernacle as a verse because if i'm going to call it a tabernacle if i say the true tabernacle that means that there's a there's an opposite there's one that's not true well it's not one was true and one wasn't true it was that the tabernacle that moses made was a tabernacle that was made of tents and of cloth 
And then, and then Solomon made a brick tabernacle that, that modeled the one that Moses made on a much larger scale. And, and all of that, Jesus said that the, the true tabernacle is the one that's going to be in heaven. And, and every part of the, of the tabernacle and of this experience that you have to access God is a picture of Jesus. Somebody say amen. It's a picture of heaven and of heavenly things. And so Jesus and everything that we see in the temple that God laid out for Moses, you know, if you had to get from your house and you started at your house and you ended into the Holy of Holies inside either Solomon's temple or Moses's temporary temple prior to that, the entire process of you approaching the outer gates and the things that you would see and the process that you would go through to get into the Holy of Holies, every part of it would be a picture of Jesus. We have the, the, the bronze altar that's on the outside. It's a picture of the sacrifice that Jesus would make. You at some point would pass the table of showbread where the, they would keep fresh hot bread on there. Jesus is the bread of life. You would pass a giant menorah which would be lit and lit all the time and staying lit. Jesus is the light of the world. The temple was specifically made in red, white, and blue. It was made red for the blood of Jesus, and it was made white for the purity in the, of Jesus, and blue for represented the divinity and, and the God nature. And every part of it is, is a direct aspect of, of something that teaches Jesus. And now listen, God is so magnificent in his um, ability to tell us a story through the lives of other people. And God does it all the way through the Old Testament, and everything that he does, there's a symbolism in it that that. that that's about Jesus and that tells a picture and that shows us something. And so God doesn't want us to mess that up or change that, right? We have Genesis chapter 22, this crazy story in Genesis chapter 22. And God wanted to communicate something to you. So 4,000 years ago, he takes a guy, Abraham, and between these two guys, Abraham and his son, God paints the most amazing picture of something that was going to happen thousands of years later. And he says, Abraham, take your son Isaac up onto Mount Moriah and to the exact place that I will show you and sacrifice him there. And you're reading the details of this picture and part of it doesn't make sense. But for us, it makes sense because we know and as we look at it, we're like, wow, Isaac was 33 years old in this picture. He was exact same age as Jesus would be. Isaac was a grown man. He, he had to, he could have overpowered his father if he didn't want his dad to put a big knife through his chest. Isaac had to go willingly. Jesus went willingly. No man takes my life, I give it. Jesus carried his cross from the praetorium to Calvary down a famous stretch of road called the Via Dolorosa. Isaac, in the story, carries the wood up the place to make the altar. So Isaac is carrying the wood. And Jesus carried the wood and Isaac went willing and Jesus went willing and all the way through line after line after line, detail after detail after detail, exactly, exactly. Even the place where Abraham took Isaac, the exact place where Jesus would die on a cross, exact spot on planet Earth, because God told them to go to the place. Now, where Abraham, this is a little side note, because I know there's one of you technical people in here that know this. So I'm going to say for your benefit, everybody else just just hang out for a minute. Um, the, the place where Isaac was, um, Abraham was told to take Isaac seven times in Genesis 22, God makes a definite article about the place. 
And because the entire story of Genesis 22 is a picture of Jesus, to me it would only make sense that, that the very place that was on Mount Moriah that Abraham took Isaac would be the same exact place that Jesus would die on a cross. But what happens in history is that Herod, before he rebuilt Solomon's temple, and in that time, Herod took um, those earth-moving tractors, those big, big, big ones, and he, he re-landscaped parts of Temple Mount and Mount Moriah. And so he shaved off the top half. So it's very possible that the mountain used to be this tall, and Abraham took Isaac here, and then, and then when Herod scraped off the top 40 feet, they just draw a line directly down, and that's the spot where Jesus died on a cross. But it was the place, and yes, there was some excavation done there. So that explains that for you, you uh, technicals in here. Okay. What? Missler. Yeah, you chuck Missler people. So um, in verse 4 it says, For if he were on the earth, he would not be priest, since there are, there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the patterns shown you on the mountain. So God says to Abraham, to Moses, listen, make sure you make it exactly. And when, when he told the story of Jesus through Abraham and Isaac, every part of it had to be done exactly. It's amazing how God did it, right? Because Isaac could have, who knows? That day, maybe when his dad said, hey, Isaac, pick up that wood and, and come with me. And Isaac could have said, oh, hey, dad, I, uh, I'm just going to throw the wood on my mule. Uh, no, you, and Isaac, Abraham really wouldn't have known. No, you can't do that. You have to carry, you'll break the symbolism. But that day, Isaac chooses to carry the wood, you know, and so many things could have went just a little different, and it would have changed the story. But God here tells Moses, he gave him instructions for what the temple should look like. And then he says, be careful to do it exactly the way I told you, because every part is a picture. You know, Moses, um, in another era, in Moses' life, he didn't get to go into the promised land, Okay. He, he led, the, his life breaks up into three exact 40-year periods. He was 40 years, he was an adopted son in the house of Pharaoh in Egypt. And he lived as, as royalty for 40 years. He drove a Lamborghini to, to high school, and, and he was all that, and a bag of chips. He was the king's son. At 40 years old, he, he killed an Egyptian, and he left, and he went to the Midian Desert. Where life was, could not have been more polar opposite, and he was a shepherd which was not a, not a very good occupation. It would be a sewer cleaner today who had to get down. You know, I mean, it was not good. And, and so for 40 years, he just humbly led sheep around the wilderness in Midian. At 80 years old, he came to a bush that was on fire, and it didn't extinguish. And God said, I want you to go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. At 120 years old, Moses died. And in his 120th year, the nation of Israel was ready to enter the promised land. And God said to Moses, you can't go in, which seems kind of harsh. Like he was super faithful to God for all these years. But what happened, and the reason that God said Moses couldn't go in, was because he broke the symbolism that God was creating. When he struck the rock. Now, twice in Egypt in those 40 years, or leaving Egypt in the wilderness, the, the, Moses struck the rock and water came out in a miraculous way. The people were grumbling and complaining, and they had no water. And they came to Moses, and Moses went to God. And Moses, God said, Moses, take your rod and go and strike the rock, and water will come forth. 
And so Moses goes and he strikes the rock and water comes forth and provides for the people. And then sometime later, the people are grumbling and complaining again. They have no water. And Moses goes to God and he prays. And God says, Moses, I want you to go to that same rock and I want you to speak to the rock and water is going to come out. And Moses is angry and he's mad at the people because of their lack of faith and, and he's struggling and he comes down and he, he looks at the people and he's angry and he says, you know, you lack faith. He said, you don't trust God about anything. He said, must I smite this rock a second time? And he takes his staff and he hits the rock and by the grace of God, water comes out. And then God shows up and says, Moses, yoo-hoo, you're in big trouble. You're, you will not enter the promised land as you struck the rock. I told you to speak to the rock. Such a big deal to God because the rock is Jesus and Jesus will die on a cross for your sins. How many times? One time. Jesus was smitten one time. And now after Jesus is smitten, how do we now in this dispensation approach Jesus by faith? And we now speak, you know, now salvation, heaven and hell is a matter of your faith and of words. And Jesus died. So the rock and we know that the rock is always a biblical idiom for Jesus. Jesus is our rock. And so God was creating a symbol that was, that was telling a biblical story. And Moses broke it by hitting the rock a second time. And he broke the symbolism. So God is serious biblically about this stuff. And here again is a reminder because every part of this temple is God's plan for you and I. Now listen, r- real quick, let's look at Revelation chapter 21. I want to tell you something about God's um, final plan for you. Look what it says in Revelation 21. It says, Verse 1, now I saw a new heaven, somebody say new heaven, and a new earth, for the first heaven had passed away, and also there was no more sea. Does that mean that the heaven that's there currently is going to be gone, and then God's going to create a new one that we've nobody seen yet? Absolutely, that's what that means. That's what a new heaven means. A new heaven and a new earth, this one's going to go away. And then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So this is eternal heaven. So in a nutshell, and I'm not teaching Revelation this morning, but listen, in a nutshell, God said that, that heaven and earth that's here today, he's going to, they're going to be done away with. He's going to get rid of them. Peter tells us how he's going to do it. Okay, how, you remember how he's going to do it? It says that Jesus is going to let go. Okay? When Jesus lets go, Jesus holds every atom together. And when Jesus lets go, it's all going to go up in a big A bar in a big fire. And so it all goes away, and then God creates a new heaven and a new earth where we're going to spend eternity. So what eternal heaven is, according to this description, actually has two parts. It has like a spiritual heaven, then it has an actual heavenly city called New Jerusalem. It's, it's, it's a cube, and it's, and it's about the size of the moon. We even get an earthly description of heaven. But, but what's different in heaven and in this earthly description is we only live on the surface of planet earth. But in heaven... We're going to live on multiple dimensions and we could have, you know, level up and down. And I forget what the number is, but even even a cube the size of the moon would be so large that if every person in human history that ever lived was in heaven, every person would have like 70 acres to themselves. That's how big it is. It's huge. And it's yet the size of the moon, but in multi-dimensions. And so this new heaven and this new earth come down. And let's say what God says about it. And in verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
And there shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying, and there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said to me, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. And he who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And then in verse chapter 22, it says, And he showed me a pure river of water, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of the street and on either side of the river was the tree, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. So you have a, a tree, and these trees in heaven yield their fruit, but it's a different fruit. Twelve fruits, one a month. So the first month it grows peaches, and then the next month it grows something different, oranges, in the same tree. And it says, um, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there, for they need no lamp, nor light of the sun. For the Lord God gave them light, and shall reign forever. Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God, a holy prophet, sent his angels and his servants, and the things must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of this prophecy. In, um, in, in back in 21, in verse number 9, it says, Now one of the seven angels who had the seven filled, take with me, saying, Come, and I will show you the bride of the Lamb. And he carried me away to the Spirit, a great high mountain. He showed me a great city, holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like most precious stone and jasper stone, clear as crystal. And she had a great high wall and gates, twelve gates and twelve names written on the gates, which are the children of Israel, and gates on the east, three gates on the east, and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west. And then look at verse 22 of chapter 21. It says, Now I saw what? No temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of the sun or the moon or the light in it, for the glory of God illuminated and the Lamb is its light. You know, this chapter 21 and 22 here is really the only description that we get of heaven in the Bible. The Bible says of heaven that, that, that it's going to be so good and so great that it has not even entered the heart or the mind of men the thing that God has prepared for them. No matter how awesome, no matter what, if you could imagine right now what your wildest dreams would be um, and how they would be fulfilled, God says that that won't even touch what he's prepared for you in heaven. You know, the fact that heaven is going to be, it's heavenly first. It's just supernatural. You can't even imagine. It's not even on a different level, the Bible says, that, that, that you, your mind can't even grasp. God can't even tell you. Even the description of this, this, this throne of God and this river that comes out of the throne and these trees that bear different fruits in their seasons, like the, the, the concept really, your mind can't get around it. And so, you know, I often say the reason why God doesn't give us more description of heaven is because it would be so amazing we'd all jump off a bridge to get there. Like, and that's not God's will or God's plan that, that, that he, you know, there's work to be done here. But in heaven, I just want to say this last thing and just about heaven. We'll go back to Hebrews. But there's no temple there, right? So when you get to heaven, you won't go to church to meet with God. Why? Because he's going to be there. You're going to have direct access to him. It says that you're going to know him as you're known. 
that, that you're going to have as much fellowship and time with God directly and personally as, as you, you want and need. And there'll be no function. There'll be no church. There'll be no pastors or priests. We'll have one priest, one high priest in heaven, and his name is Jesus. Go back to Hebrews chapter uh, 8. And so the tabernacle that he told Moses to build is, um, it's important that he does it exactly right. In verse 6 it says, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. So listen, you have Jesus as a mediator. Now what's fascinating about Job and the story of Job is that Job understood this problem. Maybe I wouldn't personally have recognized it, but Job, who is the first book that was ever written, he, he had this problem, and he was there, and, and Job says in his own words, in his own book, he says, man, I, I, I want to plead my case to God. I want to ask God to forgive me. I want to figure out why my life is falling apart. But he said, man, I have no mediator. There's, there's no man betwixt between me and God that, that, that can intercede on my behalf. And Job understood the problem and the lack um, in the Old Testament of a mediator between But now we have, and we take for granted, but we have a mediator. We have Jesus who goes between you and the Father. And and that Jesus is somebody now who's been man and is God and can relate. And and you have a great mediator, a great advocate on your behalf. And that Jesus is that great minister, advocate, and mediator that we have of a better covenant. And the better covenant, I mean, just very simply, plainly, Paul says here that the New Testament, the new covenant that you and I live under is better than the Old Testament that the Old Testament saints lived under. And then in verse 7, he says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because they did not continue in my covenant, I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. I heard somebody say amen. Amen, right? What a promise. So if you, if you just make a note here, it's in your margin anyways, Jeremiah 31, 31. And if you turn to a prophecy of Jeremiah 31, you would find that word for word what, what the author of Hebrews is saying here is recorded in Jeremiah as a prophecy. That this is exactly what God said he was going to do in the future. Now listen, you and I, we have a benefit. We have lots of benefits. And Paul's already making a case to these guys. Listen, you don't want to go back to the law of Moses. The, 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 this law, this covenant that God has created for you and I on this side of the cross is so much better. You have direct access to God. God will be your God and you will be his people. You'll hear the voice of God. That God will write upon your hearts, um, in your mind and upon the tablets of your heart, his word. That he will give you the Holy Spirit. And do you realize, again, for you and I, do you, do you thank God? Like you get up every day and just say, oh God, thank you that I have the Holy Spirit. Thank you that you've decided to fill me and give me the Holy Spirit. Because that's not something that, that's, that all of human history had. Abraham never had that. Noah never had that. You know, the men and women of the Old Testament, they, they didn't have the same relationship with the Holy Spirit that you and I have. That's a new thing that Jesus did after he died on the cross. 
The, the, the Bible says in the Old Testament, we have a couple, like it says about Solomon, that Solomon, not Solomon, Samson, Samson was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. John the Baptist was another one who was filled with the Holy Spirit. But being filled with the Holy Spirit 24 hours a day, seven days a week, like you and I are, where the Holy Spirit now makes residency inside your heart if you're a Christ follower, that's new. Nobody had that before. That's something that Jesus did after he died on the cross. Holy Spirit would show up at times and, and give people gifts and help them, but he didn't stay and remain with them. And today, you and I, we have the Holy Spirit who's in us and with us all the time, who's a constant teacher and reminder and, and, and the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life, and that we have this new covenant and this new dispensation. And, and, and Paul tells us in the Corinthians that if you're, if you're a believer in Jesus, behold, I make all things new that you're a new creation in Christ. Behold, old things have passed away, and I make all things new. Amen? That we're born again to Jesus um, through relationship, and that God's going to do something. He's going to give us the Holy Spirit. He's going to be with us all the time, and that he's going to write these things upon the tablets of our heart. What does that mean? That means that, that what God's interested in your life is, is things of the heart. That he's now going to write the law of God upon your heart. And if you try to follow God based on what's written on a paper or what the rule or regulation is that you think God desires for your life, you're going to struggle and you're going to fail. And that's not what God's interested in. Praise God that now he's going to write it upon the tablets of your heart. Why do I have the ability and the comfort to tell somebody who asks me, hey, is this okay or is that okay? What did dad say? Because God's going to write it on your heart. And I know that, that the Holy Spirit will speak to you and that God can speak to you. And that, that really, you know, even in the area, I love it when people ask me how much they, they should tithe, you know, 10%, this and that, you know. And then sometimes people will say, is it off gross or is it off net, you know. And, and, and again, I'll tell them the same thing. Like, you, you purpose in your heart and you talk to God. You have, but I know this. If you go and talk to God about what you're supposed to give, he's going to tell you way more than what I would have told you anyways. But you can hear and know the voice of God. And, and you can have that because God is going to write it on the tablets of your heart. That God is going to, and again, that's, that's new. That's a new dispensation. That's not something that, that really they, always, that they had luxury of before in the Old Covenant. And Paul's saying this one is better for that reason. So good. And then in verse um, 11, it says, None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. Somebody say amen. Listen, 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 listen again, Linda, listen. They shall all, God says, God says here, they shall all know me. They shall all know me. Like you can know God. What? Like God's your homie? Yeah. Well, he ain't your homeboy, but, you know, but you know God intimately and personally. And that it won't be, you know, in heaven again, there won't be no need for Bible study in heaven. Because we'll know him as we're known. And all will know him. And we won't have to call our neighbor and, and teach our neighbor because God will teach them. And they will know God intimately and personally. And then he says, um, listen, look, look at verse 11 again. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. So who, who has access to know God? Who gets invited to know God? From the greatest to the least. Does that mean that, that God doesn't only bring revelation and talk to, you know, spiritual giants? That you've got to be like Pastor Furtick before God will speak to you? 
you got to be like Billy Graham? Is that, is that what, does God only speak to, to certain people and not others? Do you need a, a, a pastor, a priest, somebody in your life that God has better access to God than you do? Listen, he said in the last chapter, he'll save from the uttermost. Here he says that all should know me from the greatest to the least. From the greatest to the least. Everybody's invited. So radical. Gospel is for all people. Jesus is for all people. Regardless of, of, of status, greatest, least, anything else. That Jesus is for all people. You know, listen, I want to say a little note about that on a side note real quick for us as Christians. You know, it's super important, right, that, that we love all people. It really is important. It's important that we, if we've had any prejudices or any kind of, um, you know, things in our background against any people or anything, that, that we're very, very careful that we repent of that, that we seek God for healing from that, that we change of that, 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 that the gospel is for all people. And that we love all people as Jesus loved all people, regardless of, of any factor, economic, socio, political, race, height, gender, anything, that, that we first love people. And really the greatest call of all of our lives is, as Christ followers is to love people and love all people. Amen? We're almost done, you guys. And then it says, um, look at verse 12. It's getting better, though. It says, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Hey, it's a good thing that God's going to forget some of your lawless deeds. You know what's a trip is that God, now there's nothing, there's, there's, well I guess I can't say there's nothing God can't do. Because there are things that God can't do that he's chosen not to be able to do. God can't lie. The Bible says that. God can't sin. You know, sometimes when you say that people want to get stupid and the, again the Missler fans are like, well can God make a rock so big he can't move it? And to that I say, shut up. <laughs> of course he can't. Because <laughs> if he can make a rock that big, he can move it. <laughs> but um, that, that, that God can't do certain things. That, that God, and, and, and but yet God has chosen to forget your sins. Do you think he really forgets? Like he's God, right? Like he's got to know somewhere. You know, I heard, I heard a pastor say one time on this idea that God forgets your lawless deeds, your lost deeds, he'll remember no more. They're like, when you're, when you're praying, when you're talking to God and you, you repent again or you remind him about something you did in your past, they're like, don't do that because God forgot. Like, you're reminding him he didn't know anymore. I don't know if it quite works like that. But I do know this, that God has chosen, because of his great love, to take your, your mistakes and your sins and your lawless deeds and to throw them, the Bible says, in the sea of forgetfulness. The Bible says that God has chosen, because of his great love for you, to put your sins as far as the east is from the west. Now, if you took out of here today and you got in your car and you headed out to the north, you would only drive so far before you got to the North Pole. And then what? And then you would begin to head south again. If you got out of here in your car and you, headed, and you went west, you would be traveling west for eternity. Because the west and the east don't meet. So as far as the east is from the west is eternity. And that's how far God is, has placed your sins because he's chosen to do that. You know, one of the um, most exciting and I think motivating things for me as a Christ follower, and I talk about it often, is the day that I meet Jesus for, personally. What we've read today in heaven and in this place, when I get to stand before Jesus face to face and personally. And on that day, 
when I look Jesus in the face for the first time and I see his eyes, it will be the first time that I will ever see complete love. Somebody who absolutely has perfect love for me. Jesus will have absolutely no regret. He will have, you know, I don't care how well you love people in your life, how well your mama loves you, and how big of a mama bear your mom is over your life, and you could do no wrong. Even so, a mom can look at you with great eyes of love, but there's something that she knows about you that, that gives her a little pause or angst or something that she just can't forget. But Jesus, when he looks at you for the first time ever, you'll see true love. You'll see somebody that absolutely has perfect love for you with zero regrets. And, 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 and he's chosen. And part of the way, I mean, he couldn't love you guys if he knew all the stuff about you that, that you do. So he's chosen. No, I'm kidding. He knows it. You know what's crazy? Is he knows it and still loves you. But he's chosen to forget and to throw your sins into the sea of forgetfulness. Um, and then in verse 13, he says, A new covenant he has made, the first obsolete, and now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is recently vanishing away. Listen, you, you have to in your life, Christ follower. You know, we use the term Christian. I think I use that term a lot when I preach. I'm used to it. But more and more, I'm, 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 I, I like the term Christian less and less. Like the term. I don't even want to use it really anymore. You, you'll hear me say Christ follower. And I think maybe that's, that's a better way to illustrate it because, unfortunately, you know, our terms get hijacked, right? The term gay didn't always mean what it means today. At, at some point, the, the meaning of, of gay changed to what it is today. If I say gay, you immediately assume I'm talking about something, but it wasn't always that way. The word awesome, the word awesome kind of changed meaning over the old King James Version of the word awesome. Charity, for example. Words sometimes change meaning. Christian, I think, is one of those words that in our culture today is... Um, it really doesn't carry the value or, or doesn't mean always what, what it, when I say Christian, because I think it's just kind of a, kind of a big term now that people use. So I, I use the term Christ follower. And, and, and again, as a Christ follower, if you're somebody who's serious about being a disciple of Jesus and a Christ follower, it, it is absolutely imperative that you make a full surrender of your heart and life to Jesus. And listen, when you make a full surrender of your heart and life, to Jesus. And oftentimes, you guys, you know, so much of this stuff between right and wrong, between God's will for your life, between what it is that God wants for you, it, it comes back down to this simple point. Make a full surrender of your heart and life. The Bible says that if you seek God with your whole heart, you'll find him. Do you want all that God has for you? Are you, are you, you know, do you want to know what God's will for your life is? then, then in, in, you have to make that full surrender. And if you make a full surrender to God, God will guide and lead your life. The promises of God's word are true. And if the promises of God's word are not coming to fruition in your life, I promise you it's not God's fault. It's not God's, the problem is not on God's end. And, and it's necessary. And once we make a full surrender of our heart and life to God and we seek God, what does God do? God gives us a big picture mentality. Should I be doing this or should I be doing that? Should I move in this direction? Should I move in that direction? Should I take this job or take that job? Or, you know, all these questions of life, simple things even, that, that God wants to guide and lead you. And you, you will not and cannot miss the will of God if, if you really want it. And if you seek God with your whole heart, God will be found in your life. And you have as much access to God as anybody. So seek him. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's invite the worship team to come on up.
Um, they're going to close and sing us a song. Hey, uh, we'll be up front to pray for you. If anybody would like individual prayer, we encourage you to uh, come up and, and be prayed over. In a couple of weeks, we're going to start a new prayer ministry on Sunday morning and encourage folks to stick around for a few minutes after church to pray and, and receive prayer and be prayed for and with and together. And so uh, we encourage you in doing that. Hey, if there's anybody in here this morning who's never really made a full surrender of your heart and life to Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity to do so. And again, it's, it's just saying yes to Jesus in your life. And once you make a full surrender of your heart and life to God, that's, that's what salvation is. That's what it means to be saved or born again. To become born again is to make a full surrender of your heart and life to God. And maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to you today. Maybe you're not sure if, if you died today, if you're going to heaven. Maybe you're just not totally positive. You know, if you're, if you're in the boat where you say this, well, I, I hope I go to heaven. I think I would go to heaven. I, I think the good old boy upstairs would uh, understand. If you say that about God, let me lovingly um, tell you that you're in bad shape. I think God would understand, or I think the good old boy upstairs would know. He knows me. God wouldn't judge me. Let me tell you something about God. God would judge you, and God will judge you. He'll judge you righteously, but he will judge you. And and, and he's a God of love, a God of mercy, and his invitation is for all people, and his invitation is simple. It's an invitation into personal and intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, some people say something like, well, what's the best religion? Uh, I don't know, which, uh, which one forgives your sins? Which one offers heaven and a forgiveness of, of, of sins and an assurance of salvation? Only Jesus. And we're not, we're not religious folks around here. We hate religion. Religion's the enemy of the gospel. We love Jesus. We believe Jesus is the answer and the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. So I want to give you that invitation to make a full surrender of your heart and life to Jesus, to get your life right. If you need individual prayer, as we sing this last song, um, our leadership team's up front. We'd love to pray for you guys. We encourage you in that. I'm going to pray. Uh, I'm going to ask the whole church to pray out loud, and, um, and that way it just makes it comfortable. If anybody here is, is asking Jesus in their heart for the first time, um, you can say that and mean that from your heart, and God will hear your prayer, and you'll be saved this morning. If you do say this prayer for the first time, or maybe you've said it before, but you haven't been in your heart in a place where you're ready to make a full surrender, and today you can actually say the words and mean it, that you want to make a full surrender of your heart and life to Jesus, I want to encourage you to come up and uh, tell one of these guys that you prayed today and, and let them encourage you. Make sure you got a Bible and pray for you and make sure you got what you need, get you plugged in around here. So if you guys would close your eyes and bow your head with me and let's pray out loud together. Dear Lord Jesus, please come into my heart. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I believe that Jesus died on a cross and rose again the third day. I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And I ask Jesus to be my Savior, to be my Lord, to fill me with your Spirit, to forgive me of my sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen and amen. God bless you guys. We love you guys. Stick, stick around one song and then you'll be dismissed. We love you guys. God bless you guys. Have a great week.